Amen. If you would join me in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is going to be our passage of Scripture uh, for this morning. And so if you would go ahead and make your way there uh, in your Bibles. Uh, I don't think I can overemphasize how much of an impact the Great Awakening had on our world and specifically our country. Even though America uh, wasn't yet its own country, uh, when John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield uh, were leading this great revival, it would set the stage for who we would become as a nation. Now, those three names that I mentioned, Jonathan Edwards, is, he's, he was here in America. He was pastoring a church in America. But predominantly, he stayed there at his church throughout that time until they fired him. Um, but John Wesley and George Whitfield traveled around constantly. Jonathan Edwards did some of this, but Whitfield and Wesley traveled the nation, traveled throughout Britain and America, preaching and these huge revival meetings that would see thousands of people come to know Jesus. George Whitfield and John Wesley, they worked together some, they were they were friends, but then there was this kind of parting of the ways. And they would be um, frenemies, perhaps, uh, for a long period of time. And as Whitfield came towards the end of his life, he spoke about how his ministry had taken a different approach than Wesley's. And he regretted that he had not taken some of the wisdom that Wesley used and used it in his own ministry. Now, Whitfield was known for just having this incredible voice where he could project so that thousands of people could hear him. And this was before there were microphones. And he is said to have spoken to 25,000 people at one gathering in Boston. And everyone was able to hear him, just him projecting with his own voice. Some of you, if we don't have the volume up all the way, you can't hear me in this room, right? Imagine the mass of people, how much noise there would have been, just occasionally people moving around or coughing, and Whitfield is able to preach loud enough for everyone to hear. And so he has these huge gatherings, these large meetings where people are saved and they're transformed. Many people were brought to know Jesus. Benjamin Randall, who's the father of the Free Will Baptist movement, was saved out of the influence of George Whitfield's preaching. But Wesley's approach was different. Wesley didn't have this big, loud, booming voice that Whitfield had. He was much smaller and more slight, and he wasn't this imposing figure. But he did something different. In all of his meetings, he would push the people to join what he called societies and bands. And a society would be about 10 to 15 people of both genders. A band would be four to six people of the same gender. And these would become Bible study groups and discipleship groups. These societies were bands of people getting together to talk about God's word, read scripture together, and hold one another accountable. And Whitfield, later in his life, towards the end of his ministry, said of Jonathan West, John Wesley, My brother Wesley acted wisely, 
The souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined in class or society and thus preserved the fruits of his labor. This I neglected. And here's the key phrase I want you to get from what I've been talking about. This I neglected and my people are a rope of sand. My people are a rope of sand. Now this phrase, rope of sand, is probably pretty unfamiliar. Right? You probably didn't use that in conversation this past week. It was a little bit more familiar back then. Whitfield and Wesley actually have used it in some of their sermons. They refer to people trying to build their relationship with God on their own works. And it was like trying to get to heaven using a rope of sand. And the picture here is that obviously when you would pull on a rope of sand, the sand is going to come disconnected. Right? The strength of a rope is in its connection. That it's woven together. But sand, you pick up a, a handful of sand, there's nothing holding it together. And even if you take some moisture and you pack it together and you make a sand castle with your kids on the beach, you know that a wave comes or it gets a little windy and it's not over. Sand is the opposite of a rope. Sand has no connection. Pick up sand and it slips through your fingers. Today is the Sunday of Labor Day weekend, and this Sunday is always special to me, not because I'm super pumped about Labor Day. Um, it's special to me because it was Labor Day weekend 2005 when Nicole and I came here and I preached my first sermon as pastor of Faith Church. So today, 17 years here as the pastor of Faith Church. And thinking about that this week, thinking about 17 years, thinking about the years ahead, I said to myself, no ropes of sand. I am not interested in putting together any more ropes of sand. I don't want to come to the end of this. And like Whitfield say, my people are a rope of sand. Wouldn't matter how big the gathering was if it was just a rope of sand. Jesus gave us a similar picture in one of his parables. In his closing on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he said, A wise man builds his house on what? A rock. And the storm comes, and the winds blow, and the house stands. But a foolish man builds his house on what? He builds his house on sand. The rains come and the winds blow and the house falls. And Jesus was speaking of people who listen to his words and then don't act on them. People who hear his commands and don't obey them. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. So Jesus is specifically talking about obeying his commands or putting them into practice that's the difference maker the sermons of whitfield and wesley were both about jesus and they both brought about transformation when those truths were put into practice what wesley did he wasn't a better preacher than whitfield 
He was probably the weaker of the two preachers. Whitfield was most likely the stronger preacher. But what Wesley did is he built greenhouses in every town and city that he went to where the seeds of the gospel that had been planted could have space to grow and take root. He gave people building blocks so that they could build their Christian life upon rocks and not sand. As a young man, when I would read Acts chapter 2, I loved the moment of Pentecost. In chapter 2 and verse 36, where we'll start reading, Peter preaches and thousands of people come to know Jesus. And I've always loved that moment in this passage. But as I get older and more and more labor days have come and gone in my time here at Faith Church, I have grown to appreciate more and more verses 42 and on. So let's start reading in verse 36 to give context to 42 to 47. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is kind of the, the final emphasis of Peter's sermon that he's preaching. Verse 37 gives us the crowd's reaction to this. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Just incredible things happening here preaches this powerful gospel message. The Spirit is working. People are cut to the heart. They experience conviction that only the Holy Spirit can provide. People recognize their need. They're begging, what must we do? Peter tells them to repent, to put their faith in Jesus, and 3,000 people are saved and baptized. It's incredible. But Luke doesn't stop recording this moment here. He continues to go on about what happened after that. You know, a lot of times you watch a movie and there's this kind of like powerful moment. You know, a person stands up and they give this moving speech, right? And the movie ends, the, the end comes across and rolls credit and you walk out of the theater you're like, man, that was amazing, that was so powerful, right? But have you ever thought about like, what happened the next day? What happened after he gave that incredible speech, right? If you think about that, that's a little less inspiring. Because then he had to like put all those things into practice, put it to work. And if we just stop here, we don't read what's next, we can have this, man, that was incredible. That's what we need today. We need more moments like this one. But what happened the next day? Verse 42 says, and they continued steadfastly. You know what verse 42 starts off with? It starts off with the opposite of a rope of sand. Steadfastness. Resiliency. Retention. 
stick with itness. They continued steadfastly. If you're not familiar with the idea of steadfast, you probably don't use it a whole lot, right? Hey, I like that car, it's steadfast, right? Chevy doesn't advertise, buy our trucks, they're steadfast. And they say, like a rock. The idea is it's stable, it's consistent, it's unwavering, it persists, it endures. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continually, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Recently, I heard someone, they were asked, how did you learn how to do that? And he responded, YouTube University. Um, and the joke there is he watched someone do it on YouTube. And today, if you have fixed anything, then you weren't sure how to do it. Perhaps you have gone through the process. I'm going to watch this YouTube tutorial. Now, what's dangerous about that is you can find a video that's this person made it and it's got a lot of views, but it's no help. Pastor Eric and I, when he was moving in uh, to the parsonage across the street, this is years ago, we were reprogramming the, the keypad so that you can open the garage door. And I had done it years ago, but I couldn't remember how. And so he looked up a YouTube video and the guy had it broken down step by step. Here's what you do. Here's what you do next. Here's what you do next. And we watched this video and we followed all of the steps. It's like a three-minute video. We would watch a little bit, pause it, do that, watch a little bit, pause it, do that. But at the end of the video, the guy goes, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> would have been great to know that at the beginning, right? But he was like, I made the video. I'll go ahead and upload it. And Two million people watched it and went through those steps, right? What we have in the book of Acts is we have a tutorial, if you will. Luke has recorded for us how they went through step by step in the, the history of God moving and building the church. And what we have here is not the YouTube tutorial of someone who ended up not working. What we have here is the process of the church that was planted 2,000 years ago that is on every continent that is spreading around the world, that people are singing the praises of Jesus right now in every time zone. This is how it started, right here. And this little five-verse section. Yes, Peter preached and thousands responded, but then what happened next is our first glimpse of the early church. And it was no rope of sand. Rather, it is this cord 
this enduring, strong cord that has lasted through generations. And what we want, what we're desperate for, is to see this continue on in the years to come. You see, revival happens when the religious are renewed, and that's what we see. There's 120 people who were Jesus' closest followers. They gather in the upper room. They're praying. The Holy Spirit moves. These are the religious core followers who are renewed by the Holy Spirit, and revival breaks out. And then revival is the renewal that happens among the religious going viral. That's what's happening here. It's spreading like wildfire suddenly. But you and I, we know a little something about viruses, right? Because we've experienced a major virus. And the way that our national leaders and world leaders responded to COVID-19 is they wanted to shut down every major gathering, every major event, every place where there would be lots of people in one spot, because those would be what they called super spreader events. Don't want it to be a super spreader. And so they shut down all of these events and nobody was in sporting venues. And, but it just kept spreading, didn't it? Because it didn't matter if nobody was getting together in groups of thousands. I could still pass it to you and you to me and the person that you had dinner with and those of you who had COVID-19, most likely you didn't catch it at some gathering of 10,000 people. You probably caught it at a gathering of four or five or six. This movement that takes place here, it isn't built on the charismatic and persuasive gifts of any one or two people in thousands gathering in a stadium. Rather, it's spread from person to person in these informal groups. And in fact, when the leaders of that day try to stop it by shutting down the church and not allowing people to gather in these big groups, instead of slowing down the spread of the gospel, they accelerate it because the people are forced into all of these other cities and towns. And the gospel continues to go viral. Paul would actually refer to this principle in one of his sermons in Acts 17, 17, 24. He says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And the church was able to replicate and grow quickly because God didn't need any specific spot and he didn't need any specific person. His gospel was changing lives in all of these different directions. And so that means that the church is more like a starfish than a spider. And I'm sorry that you've heard me use this analogy multiple times, but I'm going to continue to use it until we get the idea. A starfish and a spider are somewhat similar. Both have kind of a central mass with legs and arms going out from the central mass. But the key difference is that if you cut the leg or arm of a spider off, you just have a crippled spider and a dead, shriveling up leg. If you cut a spider in half, you have two halves of a dead spider. But if you cut the leg or arm off of a starfish, 
You don't have a crippled starfish and a, a dead and shriveled leg. You have two starfish. And if you cut a starfish into multiple pieces, you've actually multiplied the starfish. In fact, off of the East Coast, years ago, oyster fishermen who were tired of starfish eating all of their oysters, whenever they caught them in their nets, they would cut them up into little pieces and throw them back in the ocean, thinking they were killing off the starfish, but what they were doing is they were multiplying the starfish. That's exactly what happens in the book of Acts when the church leaders are put in prison and people are persecuted for their faith and they're scattered into the wind. Instead of it killing the church or crippling the church, it multiplied the church. That's how a church should operate. A church should be made up of resilient disciples so that us suddenly becoming scattered to the wind does not kill the church but multiplies the church. How does that happen? It happens because of the processes that these people were involved in. If the church was just dependent upon Peter preaching to 3,000 people every Sunday, and then eventually 8,000 people every Sunday, if they arrest Peter, then the church falls apart. But because it wasn't dependent upon that, the arrest of Peter causes the church to grow and to expand. I don't want us to be a rope of sand. I want us to be like a starfish. I want us to be a gathering of resilient disciples who are able to have influence elsewhere in the world, who do not come here into this gathering, and this is the only place where we can experience growth and renewal, but we're able to carry that growth and renewal outward with us wherever we go. And that if you, for whatever reason, are moved somewhere else in the nation or you're disconnected from the group, it does not lead to the extermination of your Christian faith, but rather the reproduction of what God is doing here among us. So how does that happen? Well, here in this passage of Scripture, we see that there were some things that were true about them and I hope that they're true about us. First of all, they had doctrinal clarity. The reason they continued steadfastly is they were clear on what they were clinging to. The connection was important, but not more important than the doctrine. They didn't emphasize connection and fellowship to the detriment of doctrine. It wasn't either or. They didn't emphasize doctrine to the detriment of fellowship. It was both and, but Doctrine was first and foremost. And if one had to disintegrate, it was the connection, not the doctrine. Listen, it can be tempting to hold fast to relationships and hold doctrine a little more loosely. But doctrine must be the priority. And this is tough. Because when you hold on to doctrine steadfast, there will come a time where you're accused of being cruel. You'll be called a jerk. People say things like, I thought you cared about us. We know because this has happened. I do care about you. In fact, I care about you so much that I will not let go of doctrine. I think the most loving thing that I can do for you is hold on to doctrine 
to my dying breath. I, I, I think the most loving thing I can do is hold on to doctrine even when it's uncomfortable. Especially when it's uncomfortable. And I think that if you read the New Testament, what you see is displayed in the church is that we must hold on to these truths. We must hold on to these doctrines. We must be clear on what the Scripture says. And that when that becomes murky or hard or uncomfortable or awkward, that it is a witness that we hold on to them anyway. And while it might not be popular in the moment, it is what is enduring. A doctrinal clarity. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread. Now, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, comma, in the breaking of bread. Now, the term here used for fellowship and in breaking of bread, the idea is breaking of bread is like having a meal. Nothing super spectacular about that. But the emphasis seems to be here, this is not just the breaking of bread like we might do or anyone might do at a restaurant this afternoon, but this is the apostles' way of breaking bread, which was a little different. And when Christians gather together for a meal, it should be a little different. It should be a little special. Verse 46 would say again, that they would break bread from house to house. And most likely this is referring to a meal shared together, but it's not just a recurring dinner party. It's not just the sanding potluck that you have. It was a meal where they remembered what Christ had done for them. Most likely it wasn't always communion, but occasionally communion was a part of it. And they would remember as they broke bread... That when Jesus with the disciples said, this is my body, which is broken for you. You know, lots of people have rituals and traditions, and they aren't being made into the likeness of Jesus. Yesterday, thousands of people returned to their places of worship for the first time in months. They prepared for it all week. They made great plans, they traveled, made a pilgrimage, gathered with people perhaps that they hadn't seen in quite some time. They all dressed similarly, wearing the same colors. They broke out grills and they grilled hamburgers and hot dogs and they ate off of the tailgates of their trucks before going into the big college football game the first of the season. And they had a religious experience in their sanctuary with 90,000 of their closest friends all wearing red and screaming for their bulldogs. Listen, we're not just looking to put you into a group of friends who get together. You can find that everywhere. You can find that with people that are passionate about whatever. We're building greenhouses for the seeds of gospel renewable to grow and bear fruit and that's what we're trying to do we're forming renewal cells and that's super different than a group of friends getting together 
This past summer, I preached at a camp in Missouri. I have this sermon that I regularly preach. Some of you remember I preached a sermon on the prodigal son, and I have a terracotta pot that I smash in that sermon. That's an illustration. And I went to Missouri, and while I was there, I decided I was going to preach that message. felt like it was fitting uh, for that week at camp. Uh, and I did what I normally would do in that situation. I went to the nearest store. Normally, there's a Lowe's nearby, but this is really the middle of nowhere in Missouri, and there was no Lowe's. So I went to some store I'd never heard of before, and they have all of this lawn and garden stuff, and they had the terracotta pots, and I went and I picked it up, and it's plastic. And plastic doesn't smash very well. So I went to another store, plastic. I went to a Taylor's Do It Center, plastic. And I ended up at a greenhouse in this small town in Missouri. And, you know, it's the kind of place like you show up and nobody's around and you're not sure if it's even open, you know. And I wandered to the back of the greenhouse and I found this elderly lady and she's like, oh, yeah, we got some. And, you know, she helped me. And she's telling me about this greenhouse, how it's been here all these years. And a new couple just bought it. And about that time, this guy walks in and I'm talking to him. And he's just recently bought this greenhouse from the original owner. And before this, he was in asphalt. And I said, oh, man, I bet this is so much cooler than working on asphalt roads in the middle of summer. He goes, oh, no. He goes, when we pasteurize the soil, it gets really hot. And I said, what? When you what? The soil? He says, when you pasteurize the soil. I didn't know the greenhouses do this, but just like milk is pasteurized to kill the germs and milk, a greenhouse will pasteurize the soil. Once they're done with one season, they're getting ready to go into the next growing season, they're about to plant their crops, the first thing they want to do is they want to make sure that there's no microbes, no bacteria, no seeds from weeds or grass from the outside that have come in, that as they're trying to grow their new crops, those things are going to kill the crops or grow alongside of it. So they pasteurize the soil by getting it to 170 degrees in the greenhouse. That's hot. He says, when we pasteurize the soil, it's hotter than any asphalt road I worked on. When we're in community... And our community and our relationships aren't just about relationships. They're about becoming more like Jesus. There are going to be some times where it's going to get a little hot. Because we need to kill off the sin that so easily comes up among us. We've got to put to death the weeds that will try to starve out the gospel seed that's at work in us. You read the rest of the New Testament and it is just people getting pretty hot to straighten out some things in their lives and hold one another accountable. If it doesn't ever get hot in our relationships, if there's never any pushback, if we're never held accountable, we're just getting together. This wasn't just fellowship, this was gospel fellowship. This wasn't just getting together for a meal. This was breaking bread in the manner of the apostles. 
We have been intentionally raising the temperature in our groups and in our church. We're raising the bar and we're increasing expectations. Why? Because we want to kill off the sins and the weeds that will rob the mission of its power. In the days of the early church, in these days, they didn't need to do that artificially because it was already hot. Because to belong to the church and to walk into one of these groups was to put your life at risk. Was to put your occupation in jeopardy. Was to put tension on your relationships with your family that have been Jewish or have been pagan for hundreds of years. And for you to make this transition, to make this decision was major. And you and I, we are incredibly blessed to live in a country where you came to church this morning and you did not think at all about what if I'm persecuted for going to church this morning. Thank the Lord for that. But you know what that does? It makes it easier to go to church and not think at all. The church in China has grown so fast over the last 40 years. And it's because the people who are there are there on purpose. And they're there with purpose. And they're serious about it. Because their pastor might be arrested this weekend. There might be someone in the gathering who's there to report on them. They make an intentional decision to go. The temperature's raised. Naturally. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking bread and in prayers. And verse 43 says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. They had doctrinal clarity, they had gospel fellowship, and they had awesome prayer. The word for fear means awe. The New Living Translation gives us verse 43 this way. A deep sense of awe came over them all. I use the word awesome all the time. This dip is awesome. Those burritos were awesome. And the idea of awe doesn't really hit us. It means amazement. It means to be struck with how amazing something is. And listen, those burritos were good, but they didn't strike me with awe. Are you amazed at God? Are we amazed at God? Or do we take it for granted? They were praying in awe. They were praying moved by what God was doing, moved at what Jesus had done. In awe. You know that feeling we get every so often? We're entering in the season where we're going to get to that, where you're, you're in a building, right? And you're just kind of used to it being 72 degrees, right? And then you walk outside and it's a crisp morning and it's 60. And you go, oh man, it feels great out here. I know for some of you that temperature is not 60, it's 65 or 83, whatever it is, right? Because you're cold nature. But there's a, there's a temperature that when you walk out, you're like, man, it feels great out here. I, I had this experience this past week, only it was the negative. I had been inside and I walked outside and went, ugh, verbally went, ugh, it is so muggy out here. Like it just felt oppressive. 
Like, go back in. I want to go back inside. I need a tunnel from the house to the car so I don't have to walk in this oppressive mugginess. It just hits you. They were hit with this awe of what God was doing. And I want us to link this idea of awe and prayer together because unfortunately we have belittled prayer to only be asking for stuff. And prayer is more than asking for stuff. It's an opportunity to be in God's presence and just be in awe of Him. Let me give you a challenge, okay? You set a timer on your phone or your egg timer. Get, get some time alone. Five minutes. And you spend five minutes in prayer without asking God for anything. Thank Him. Adore Him. Confess your sins to Him. Five minutes without asking God for anything. I think you'll be hit with some awe. The awe of God hit them all. They had awe prayer, awesome prayer. Doctrinal clarity, gospel fellowship, awesome prayer. Verse 44 says, and I love how simply it says this. Now all who believed were together. All who believed were together. What does that mean? Obviously, all 3,000 of them weren't living at the same house. And they weren't all gathered in the same worship service. You go to Jerusalem and find a place in AD 33 where 3,000 people can gather together without just being in the streets or some large courtyard. Right? They were together. What does that mean? They were in unity. They had harmony. They were together. They were together on this. And everything that happens after that, everything that Luke tells us after that, that's just the results of that togetherness. That's, that's the byproduct of that harmony and that unity. They sold what they didn't need to give to people who did have need. There are people in this group that they had traveled to Jerusalem thinking they were going to be there for a week and they had been there for months. And so people said, I don't need this anymore. I'm going to get rid of this to provide what you need because you're a stranger and a pilgrim here. Now, sometimes we try to reverse engineer this and we say, we need to do these things so that we can have unity. When we have unity and harmony like they had, this stuff happens naturally. Because I know that you have need. I see the need that you have. And I know the thing that I have that I no longer need. And I say, this fits perfectly. Let me do this for you. Let me help you out this way. Not because I want you to owe me something. Not because I feel obligated to. But because I love you and we're together and I want to help. Doctrinal clarity, gospel fellowship, awesome prayer, sweet harmony. You know how they make ropes? I didn't. When I was a kid, I loved Mr. Rogers. 
everything about Mr. Rogers. I mean, feeding the fish, he has a stoplight in his house. I mean, everything about Mr. Rogers was great. But I really liked when he would go to a factory. He would go visit a factory, and then what followed would be this series of videos like, oh, that's how they box cereal. That's how they get milk in those cartons. And ever since then, I've, just, I've loved videos like, that's how they make that thing. And in YouTube University, you can see how they make ropes. And it's, it's really, it's a lot of braiding and twisting strands together. And these ropes that they use on massive ships, it, it all starts off as little strands. Just woven together again and again and again and again, and then woven together with more ropes that were just little strands woven together. But the strongest ropes, the ones that they use for climbing, it starts with something that's called a core filament or a core yarn or a core rope. And it's, it's a rope that they've already woven together out of the strongest material and that that is the center. And then they weave and braid these huge machines that do this all in this kind of mesmerizing rhythm around that core filament, that core fiber, this rope. You know what the church is? It's the weaving together of simple people around the core person and truth of Jesus Christ. And he is what gives it strength. But as that, that fabric is weaved around, the, the, the Jesus that Wesley preached was the same Jesus that Whitfield preached. The difference in their two ministries was the weaving together of the people who had been changed by Jesus. No more ropes of sand. No ropes of sand. Ropes bound together and weaved together around the person and truth and work of Jesus Christ. And how is this binding done? Doctrinal clarity. Awesome prayer. Gospel Fellowship, sweet harmony. You watch those videos of them weaving rope. And they're using this age-old process, this ancient process. And the video I was watching, I mean, it's literally, the cart looks like something that was pulled by horses, because it was. And they have this long building, it's a thousand feet long. And it just goes all the way down this building, weaving the rope as it goes. You and I, this morning, we looked backwards 2,000 years down a rope that God has been weaving. And it's all connected and braided around the person of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.
Oh, Lord. May we be the exact opposite of a rope of sand. Weave us together. Braid us together, Lord. Lord, may the work of your gospel transform us. May it kill the sin and the distractions and weeds in us. May we, we, we be joined together, knitted together. Lord, I pray that that rope that we looked down 2,000 years today, Lord, I pray that it would continue on. Lord, that we would be grafted in, we would be woven in, and our children and our grandchildren. Like Peter said in this passage, that this promise is not just to us, but to our children as well. Do a lasting thing. We pray this in your name. I'm going to ask you to just kind of remain in this spirit and posture of prayer as they begin to play and give you an opportunity to think on what it is that God has spoken to you about. And it might be that in your heart there is that sin, that weed that needs to be pasteurized out and you recognize there is this need. Take that to the Lord in confession. It might be that you see that you're, there is this need to be grafted and to be woven into the fabric of the life of the church Take those steps today.